here's some statistics. 8% of 12 to 17 year olds reported they had been sexually assaulted. 17% physical assault, 39% had witnessed violence. In adolescents 9 to 16, 25% had experienced at least one potentially traumatic event in their lifetime. More than 68% of children and adolescents had experienced a potentially traumatic effect by the age of 16. And then when you add other things that are traumatizing for children that we don't consider traumatizing as adults, adults, the numbers go up. Things like divorce can be very traumatizing for a child, even if divorce is the best option. As can moving, even if your family is intact. For a child to have to move, they have no control over that. That They don't have a part in that decision. They're moved from where they feel comfortable, where they know everybody, and they have to go into a whole new situation. That can be a trauma. Um, 10 to 15% of babies born a year spend at least one night in neonatal intensive care. So all of a sudden, they're not with their parents. And 12% of children between the ages of one and 17 are hospitalized every year. So those are just some of the things that can be traumatic. If you have a child whose behavior changes suddenly, I would certainly be looking back and, and trying to see what's happened to them previously through their eyes rather than through an adult's eyes to see what could be traumatic because then you can go in and help them work through it or take them to someone who can help them. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. Hi, this is Colleen Swindoll Thompson. And today I have a guest that you will absolutely love and enjoy. Her name is Jolene. Jolene, I want to welcome you to our interview today. As I was looking back over some things that you have done and are doing, what I did not realize is you were raised with a disabled father, and then I do know about raising a disabled your disabled son, and you're being involved with teaching for so many years, also as a blogger, a speaker, a writer. Um, you're also involved with the Not Alone site now, which is wonderful. Tell me what drew you into this world a lot of times it would be from having a i would think a child of a disabled parent would perhaps maybe run but it seems to have drawn you in so let's talk about that for a minute sure well as you mentioned it did start way back when i was a child my dad was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when i was two he was 29 um <laughs> My, my older sister was five, my brother was not yet born, and within a few years, dad was unable to work or walk or control his bladder or write or read. Um, but my parents determined that um, he would stay in our home as long as we kids were home. And they were able to do that. My mother went back and finished her teaching degree and supported us as a teacher. And so dad was in our home until 1983 when he developed diabetes, and then he went into a nursing home. And he lived in a nursing home for the last 14 years of his life and died in 1997. 
so that, that was the beginning of it. And then in 1982, the year before dad went into the nursing home, our son was born. And we lived out in South Dakota at that time in a very remote area. And we had to drive 90 miles to the hospital. Alan looked fine when he was born, but within a few hours, he was having breathing trouble. So he was transferred to Rapid City Regional Hospital. They called and um, diagnosed that his esophagus was not connected to his stomach. And so he was immediately life flighted to Omaha, where they did surgery to reconnect that. He had a very quick recovery that time. At two months, he had complications, another life flight, another surgery. By the time he was five, he'd had seven surgeries and hundreds of hospital procedures. He had another uh, surgery at age 15 when they had to remove the lower two-thirds of his esophagus because they thought it was precancerous. From then on, he's had no physical um, surgeries or anything out of the ordinary. He, he has to be careful with what he eats and everything, but he does very well. But the other piece of this was that in, in adolescence, he started showing a lot of unusual behaviors. He became very impulsive, very um, self-destructive, but he was also very successful. Another part of his life was very successful. And uh, eventually, he went through uh, quite a, a, a time of running away and and um, of uh, trying to figure out what was wrong. And at age 26, he was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, went through treatment for that, and has been doing well ever since. He got married in 2011, and he and his wife just had their first baby in October. <laughs> so, so they kind of have one of those wonderful hallmark stories in the end. Um, and we, I should mention we also have a daughter who is 24 and she's doing just fine. But when our son was first going through all of those problems, um, we were in such an isolated area. I was always looking for somebody who could tell me something about special needs and I could find no one. I couldn't find any books. Uh, when we moved to Iowa, when our son was three, I still couldn't find any books. And when he became 10, I couldn't find anything. And in the Christian market, I could find less than I could find in the general market. And I, I was teaching during this time and eventually I felt the call to leave teaching and God provided a different job and I had wanted to do some writing. And it eventually became clear, it was like God just tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, that book on special needs, you, should, you think somebody should be writing, so what's holding you back? And so that led to my first book, A Different Dream for My Child, that was published by Discovery House. And that came out in 2009, it's Devotions for Parents. And then two years later, they published A Different Dream Parenting, which is more practical resources for parents. So, so that's just what drew me in, that something needed to be done. Well, you did it, because it is a phenomenal resource. And as, as our audience is listening to our conversation, um, I want to encourage you, not you, Jolene, because you wrote the book, but the audience to check out a different dream for parenting because the resources are incredible, but the back part has so many different prayers, 30 days of prayers. Um, and I got to go to this one part, but a section on from fragile to fearless. And I know fear is an enormous thing that our special needs community faces and parents face because there are so many unknowns and you had to have felt fearful during those early years and then when he was kind of wandering. Now you mentioned the post-traumatic stress disorder, which 
is not one that is talked about very much in the disability world, and it's also an invisible disability. So right. inform us all on this. Well, let's talk a little bit first about what post-traumatic stress disorder is. Now, trauma is, uh, as a friend of mine says, from a kid's point of view, trauma is that yucky, scary stuff that happens to you that you can't explain. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean just because a child experiences a trauma, that doesn't mean they're going to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, post-traumatic stress disorder happens when after a child has had a trauma and it's in their brain, um, they don't have any help processing that and coming to understand what it is and being able to take that energy that's kind of trapped there and diffuse it and process it and get rid of it. When, when they don't have that support, then it, comes, it becomes trapped in their brain and they start kind of reliving the trauma whenever it's triggered. And that's when you see kids that maybe will, you hear about people having flashbacks or nightmares or trouble sleeping or, or erratic behavior when something happens. Um, and if that persists more than three months, then it is identified as post-traumatic stress disorder. So, you know, if you see it continuing after three months, you really need to get in and have um, some counseling for your child. Did you experience others as you were trying to sort through this with your son? Say, well, he's just going to get over it or... You're, look, you're thinking, <laughs> I know, we could list a whole long list, but, you know, kind of push it away because it's not a visible disability. And how did you respond to that? That happened all the time. And part of our problem, I should say, is that our son's trauma happened immediately. You know, it happened at birth. He was in the population before 1986 of newborns, where when they had surgery, there was no pain medication in their anesthetic because the belief at that time was that newborns did not feel pain like adults did. And so he was given a paralytic drug, but no pain medication. It kind of makes your skin crawl, doesn't it? Oh my gosh. Yes. So, you yeah, know, he had this immediate trauma. <laughs> and, um, so we never had a before trauma and an after trauma Alan. We only had the, the Alan who was traumatized and almost all of his early medical trauma happened in his pre-verbal years. So he was never able to verbally express this strange sense of fear and doom. It was just part of him and I'm sure he thought that's just how people lived because it was all he knew. However, when he hit, uh, we did notice in childhood a few unusual little things. You know, like if he would get in a position, there was one time on the playground where they were playing and um, somebody had one arm and somebody had the other and they were holding him, you know, it was a tag game. And he wanted them to let him go and they wouldn't. And he just leaned over and bit him to get him to let go because he panicked. He just had to get out of that. And there were other similar things so unusual for him. Him because he was not that kind of a child. He was very creative, curious, um, engaged, very bright, very social little boy. And so these were way unusual. And then when he hit middle school and we started seeing more things, kind of what we refer to now as the dark side, you know, <laughs> the dark side of Alan and the other side of Alan. Yeah, well, we maybe all have a dark side. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there were 
these things that he would do that were so impulsive and he wouldn't carry through on things. And if he saved some money, he just had to spend it right away. You know, he would be saving for something and then he'd see something else and just have to spend it. And then he started this pattern of kind of running away and wanting to just get away to a different place um, when things got too hot. And, but at the same time, he is um, in National Honor Society. He's on the high school academic team and goes all over the country to academic contests. He's the lead band in jazz band, uh, or lead drummer in jazz band and head of the drum line. And, you know, it gets the lead in all the high school plays. So when we would try any, you know, his report card is fantastic. And we would try to tell people there's something wrong. They would just look at us and say, well, we sure wish we just had your problem. Right. So, How, yeah, it's very difficult. Some of the symptoms that you mentioned, just running away from stuff or not completing stuff or spending money. I mean, those could be obsessive compulsive behaviors. They could be attention deficit behaviors. They're, you know, it's a conglomeration or a cluster. So how did you sort through those layers and find yeah. it was post-traumatic stress disorder? I would say that was truly a miracle of God. And I think the other piece of it is that those behaviors that Alan was exhibiting are typical adolescent teenage behaviors too. So that made it difficult. Um, but truly it was a miracle. Our son, when he hit 20, um, joined a, a very isolated religious community. And we again saw that as another way of running. And our though our we did have a relationship with him, it was very curtailed during those years. But in about the fifth year of his being there, at first it seemed to help. It was very structured, you know, he, he felt safe, he was doing well. But after about five or six years there, that urge to run started coming back again. And we kind of worked with him through that. But finally, it got to the point where we just got a call from him. And he said, can, can you help me? I, I can't leave here and hold a job. I can't stay here and do what I'm supposed to do. I could never get married. I can never have children. Will you help me figure out what's wrong? You know, which we had been waiting and praying for to ha happen for years. And it, it really was a miracle. Um, assist my sister-in-law, who is a mental health counselor, when she heard about it, she said, well, I just went to a conference where they talked about this treatment center, and it's only three hours from where your son is living now. Well, why don't you connect with them? So I did that, and we lived 16 hours away from our son at the time. So we were able to contact this clinic, and then we got on the road to go out and get our son, and everything else we did over cell phone uh, on the road. Um, they were able to contact him. He was able to download their forms where they would identify have him fill things out, give him medical history to see if he had post-traumatic stress disorder. He was able to get them to them. And before we got there, he had heard from them that they believed, yes, what he had was post-traumatic stress disorder. And his words to me were, mom, finally, I know what's wrong with me. I'm not just crazy. I thought there was just something inherently wrong with me because you raised two kids and my sister is so stable and I'm so unstable. I have post-traumatic stress disorder and they can help me. So Okay, like I do in most interviews, makes me tear up a little bit. How did you as a parent respond when you heard that? I mean, you had to hear relief and um, hope and yeah. you'd gone through so long without 
that how did you how did you feel and what was it like to go through that prolonged period without a definitive answer? Um, it was really hard during that long time. And thankfully, um, we have a very wise pastor. He's actually the person who was the um, inspiration behind the 30-day prayer guides because he encourages us to do that in a number of different ways in our church. And so I wanted to put that in there. But I went and talked to him shortly after our son left and went to that religious community. And I was I was kind of a wreck. And I'm like, but he's gone and I can't only talk to him this much and we can only see him now and then. And I'm what do I do? And 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 Pastor Tim just looked at me and he said, well, then you call him once a month like you can and you visit him once a year and you keep your relationship as open as you can. And then you go on with your life because that's what God's given you for now. And it was like, oh, <laughs> well, that makes sense. <laughs> and so I did, you know, and that's really when I started thinking, you know, I don't have to deal with my son right now. I can start doing more of this writing and start a bigger writing project. And, and so in a way, God used it as a blessing that way. Um, when we got the diagnosis, it was such a relief because my husband and I had begun to realize um, about two or three years before that, that our son's behavior was very similar to that of a, of a child who had been sexually or physically abused. And we knew that that was not what had happened and that there had been no other big trauma except all this medical stuff. And so we knew that it had to be uh, associated with that. We didn't know it was post-traumatic stress disorder, but we knew there was something going on. And so when we finally found out that was it, it just made so much sense. And, and the way it all happened, we just, we knew God was just carrying us forward. I mean, before we left to pick up our son, Hiram and I said, what, well, what do we do? And he said, well, we have this one straw to grasp at, and that's this clinic out there, and it's the only thing we've got. So we just go forward, assuming that's why we've got this, and, and we move forward. And so we had this sense of God really moving ahead of us and preparing our way. And then the other another piece was that my sister also is a mental health counselor. So we called her on the phone as all this was unfolding. And she said, well, give me their website. I want to check them out because there's a lot of crazy people out there and there's a lot of, you know, charlatans. I want to make sure this is legitimate. And so I did. And she called back on the cell phone an hour or two later and said, this looks really, really good. I think this is really what he needs because he needs more than talk therapy because he doesn't have words for what happened to him. He's going to need more than that. And this offers it. So we were just so relieved and felt more than I have. I think even when our son was born, any time in our life, more that God was just holding us in his hands and um, moving us forward to something that was going to be um, more healing and, and more important than anything we could visualize at the time. Well, the 30 days prayer guide that you have in the book, I would have to say your experience cultivated and formed those prayer guides because they are wonderful, but they also speak. They have words that say between the lines, I understand, I understand, here's what you need, here's the prayer. I mean, prayer 
when there are no words to find out the cause or the reason or during the waiting times, prayer is the best place and often the last place that we go. I remember when my son Jonathan early, like early, early, he, he had a lot of physical troubles his first two years. And we were in and out of the hospital all the time and got shots and needles. And I remember holding him down for one of the, um, one of the tests that they had to put tubes down his throat and he's just screaming. And of course, I'm crying there, holding him, trying to comfort him. But every time, after about a year, every time we were on the tollway and past the hospital, he would scream. <laughs> and I thought, I bet he thinks we're going to the hospital again. Would you say that would be one of those signs that you want to be alerted to? Yes, definitely. Um, one thing our son, when he was really little, I don't even know if he was a year old yet, but he got, oh, I, he was only six or seven months, I think, at the time. We got to where we would, if he was in the hospital, we would tell the doctors, would you leave your white coat outside and take off the stethoscope? Because the minute he sees that, he's, he's going to just go crazy. You know, and he was very little when that happened. Some of the other signs, and I have a few other signs here for kids because kids present post-traumatic stress differently than adults in some ways. So some of the things we mentioned, the flashbacks, nightmares, another thing to watch for in children is repetitive play. Watch what they're playing about playing and how they're playing. You know, if your child was in a, let's say a, a car accident. And so they're always playing that the cars are crashing and somebody gets hurt. That could be a sign. A friend of mine adopted a little girl from the Ukraine when she was three or four. And they noticed um, that she would play with her doll and she would tell her doll, I'm going to tie you down because you've been bad. I'm going to take my belt and tie you down. So very often children will replay what they've gone through you know, and they're just trying to relive it and make it make sense. So that's a big one, especially for young children. If they, and this, this one kind of goes along with uh, what you mentioned about your son, emotional distress when they're reminded of the event. So your son would see that reminder of the hospital and start crying. Um, a physical reaction when they're reminded, you know, when, when, uh, whenever somebody jumps off the play off, uh, playground equipment, maybe they broke their leg a while back. Every time they see somebody jump off, they get a stomach ache or a headache or something like that, or, or feel sick, that can be a, a sign. Um, sleep patterns, a change in sleep pattern, the inability to fall asleep or to stay asleep after a child's uh, endured a trauma, especially if that continues for a long period of time. If they're afraid to go to bed, they always want the lights on. And that was one, looking back, we should have seen because our son, still at age 16 or 17, he always wanted the light on. We just thought it was because he'd spent two and a half weeks in neonatal intensive care when he was born and they always had lights on. But I'm sure it was the trauma. Denial of an event, if your child denies something happened or seems totally unable to remember it, that could be a sign. Uh, this was a big one for our son, too, a foreshortened sense of the future. They say things like, uh, I probably won't live very long. I probably won't get to be a grown-up. Something bad's going to happen to me. And that would explain some of, like, our son's impulsivity with money. Because why would you save money? Or why would you wait to try anything or do anything 
if you're not going to live very long. You better do it now because now is all you've got. Difficulty concentrating. And this is why often children with post-traumatic stress disorder are misdiagnosed as attention deficit disorder because they start working on something and something triggers their trauma response. So they have to go do something else. And when that gets too difficult, it triggers. And so they're constantly switching from one thing to another, but it's trauma-based, not attention deficit based. Um, they might startle easily, uh, especially a child, you know, who's maybe had physical abuse. If a hand goes in front of them, they're going to flinch. Self-destructive behavior, irritability, impulsiveness, those are, and that's especially in adolescence. And then another, the final one would be uh, sometimes in children, depression, and that sense of hopelessness and sadness, you know, that, you know, what's, there's nothing worth living for, you know, life is just terrible, it's too scary. So those are some of the things that you would watch for in children. That list is in her book, page 247, by the way, but there's a whole section on post-trauma, but that's what's in your book that I love is that you explain things in a way that most people would probably explain away as, oh, well, they're just not wanting to focus or they're not wanting to pay attention or they don't want to do their work or they're lazy or, I mean, so many things are thrown out. And I, I would say because you listened and you watched and you observed then you were able to be guided by the Lord. And how? what would you say to the parents who are in the midst of this right now? Um, I would say if you have any concerns, you need to go and try and find someone to work with your child. Uh, I mean, it's not going to hurt <laughs> to, to go and work with them, to have them talk with someone. And it certainly could help. Um, I so wish we could have done that with our son sooner. And it just wasn't, the, the field wasn't advanced enough for our son. You know, we received the help as soon as we could. If you can help your child keep from suffering a mental wound, that is as important as if your child breaks a leg or has diabetes or has the flu, you're going to take them to the doctor and get help. Well, mental health counselors are the doctor when your child has post-traumatic stress disorder. And they can do some really phenomenal things. And when they work with kids, they use a lot of play therapy. <laughs> and for the kids, it can be quite a lot of fun. Um, so, so that's what I would recommend for parents. You need to find help. There is information about that in my book. I think it's more prevalent than we realize. What is the prevalence of this? It is more prevalent, I think, than, than we believe. I would... Most of us have some itty bitty little bit, I would think, of PTSD in it. We can probably all identify that irrational fear we have somewhere of when something happens, we retreat and act like we did when we were 12. That might be a little, that's probably a little piece of, of traumatized person inside us. But um, some of the statistics that I found, um, and I went to the national, let me see the National Child Trauma Stress Network, and I would encourage anybody to go there. That's a government site, NCTSN, and they have, here's some statistics. 8% um, of 12 to 17 year olds uh, reported they had been sexually assaulted. 17% physical assault, 39% had witnessed violence. Um, in adolescence, nine to 16, 
25% had experienced at least one potentially traumatic event in their lifetime. Um, more than 68% of children and adolescents had experienced a potentially traumatic effect by the age of 16. What um, was that, 68%? Percent? Percent. Mm -hmm. and, and then when you add other things that are traumatizing for children that we don't consider traumatizing as adults, adults, the numbers go up. Things like divorce uh, can be very traumatizing for a child, even if divorce is the best option. It's such a change and such a scary thing for a child that that can be traumatizing. As can moving, even if your family is intact. For a child to have to move, they have no control over that. That they don't have a part in that decision. They are moved from where they feel comfortable, where they know everybody, and they have to go into a whole new situation. That can be a trauma. Um, one that we don't want to think about as a trauma because we know it's a good thing is adoption. But adoption, even for a newborn, can be traumatic. They're used to nine months of their mother's rhythms and their mother's voice. And, and that environment. And so if you have a very sensitive baby when they're newborn and they're moved, you know, into a place where they don't hear that voice anymore, they don't have that mother's body rhythm, that can be traumatic and it can affect them later on. Of course, when we think of older children, that becomes even, we can see why it's more prevalent in them. But adoption can be very traumatic. Um, 10 to 15% of babies born a year spend at least one night in neonatal intensive care. So all of a sudden they're not with their parents. And 12% of children between the ages of one and 17 are hospitalized every year. So those are just some of the things that can be, be traumatic. So I, I don't know what to say for um, how prevalent it is. I can't give you a statistic, but I can say that you, if you have a child whose behavior changes suddenly, I would certainly be looking back and, and trying to see what's happened to them previously through their eyes rather than through an adult's eyes to see what could be traumatic because then you can go in and help them work through it or take them to someone who can help them. Excuse me, don't you think so often we as adults or parents put our eyes on, on the child and forget to see from their perspective. Definitely. We do that all the time because what rolls off our backs, we assume rolls off theirs and it doesn't. It doesn't at all. How do you think churches respond to this and what are some ways they could respond better to a child or an adult who has post-traumatic stress disorder? Now, our church responded very well to when we started telling our story, but they had watched us. I mean, we had been in that church family for a long time. They knew what we had tried to do. They knew that we had done all that we could. And so they were really, when Alan finally went to the treatment center and came back, it was a rejoicing for our church. And I don't think many of them had any doubts about the post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, and then I think the other piece of it is that the way his life has changed so much since then is a witness in itself that the treatment he went through was effective and that they treated him for the right thing. Unfortunately, I don't think that's the case in churches a lot of the time. I agree with you. Uh, be <laughs> because so much of mental illness and post-traumatic stress disorder presents 
and looks to us the same way sin does. And they do, they look a lot alike. Um, and so we assume that these behaviors that are triggered by post-traumatic stress disorder are the result of some kind of sin within that person or the parents who are raising the child and they just were bad parents and they, they just got their act together, they could do a better job. You need another parenting class. <laughs> yeah, oh, really yeah. now? You know, where we really have no idea of what they're dealing with and need to show them a lot of grace. So I, I think that's a whole lot of it. And we who have experience with mental health need to really get out there and educate them. And the most effective means I have found is that example I used before, where I said, okay, because you hear all the time, well, you just need to pray more. You just need to be lifting your child up in prayer. You need to be doing more devotions with them, yada, yada, yada. And you just have to say to somebody, okay, so when your child has appendicitis, all you really need to do is pray more. And you need to have more devotions, right? And they think you're crazy. They'll say, of course not. You take them to the doctor and you get a fix. Exactly. That's a mental illness. Just because you can't see the disease or you can't see the wound or the infection, it is there. And praying over it is good. Just like praying over your child who's sick when you take him to the doctor is good. But praying and receiving proper treatment is better. And we have ways to, to treat these many of these mental illnesses. I think it's interesting. Um, I want to say this carefully and kindly, but also very realistically. Oftentimes, the Christian community can associate something that they may not be familiar with or that they don't understand or that they're afraid of and offer kind of this, well, you need to do more of praying and you know of course prayer is good and I okay I'm gonna be really honest and say I want to say unless you live in my home then I would prefer you not assume how much I am praying or how much I am depending on the Lord or how often we seek him to just help us understand I mean we live with him he's our child so we pretty much have a vested interest in his well-being <laughs> So instead of telling me what to do, walk alongside me and be a companion. What would that have looked like for you? I mean, it sounds like you had that, but in helping churches today, what is a companion? Well, I think one of the main things we can do is be, be very practical um, and think about what does this family need? Probably, this will probably make me cry, when our son was very little and I was struggling a lot, um, I said to my husband, we need help. We need somebody to help us because I don't think I can take much more of this and I don't want to do something to hurt our son. So we asked the pastor of a little missionary church in our town. Um, it wasn't even the church that we went to, but I was a teacher and I taught their two kids. Um, and the church we went to was so isolated, we had traveling pastors that came in every week and it just, that couldn't supply the the level of uh, support we needed. So this pastor and his wife came in and they every week would come and we would we did a Bible study through the book of James. Now I don't remember anything we talked about. My husband says we studied the book of James. I don't even remember that. All I remember is that they came over every week and they prayed with us and they helped us understand that God was there. 
and they didn't judge us. They just were there. And so that's what we need to do. We need to not judge people and tell them how they need to change. We just need to show them, demonstrate the love of Christ to them so that they will believe the Bible is true. <laughs> that's really what's needed. I appreciate you talking about that because there's so much wisdom in what you've offered and yet your personal life, I have been there at times and will probably be there again at times. How do you, would you speak to the person who's, who's right there right now? What I would say to that person is talk to someone, call somebody, find a group on Facebook. <laughs> um, if you can't get out of your house, um, call somebody at a church uh, and keep calling just because maybe somebody from one church isn't very kind to you or seems to be too busy. Keep calling until you find somebody that can come and talk to you. Um, the best thing I think you can do is find another parent who's gone through something similar and seems to be surviving it now. You know, it seems to have come through it and found a purpose and meaning because they're going to be able to help you. And then the other thing is ask for practical help. Ask, tell people that you don't have time even to cook a meal. Could they help bring meals? If somebody says, what can I do? Um, uh, tell me how to help. Give me a call. Call them and have a list of things. Um, you can go to my website and it's called differentdream.com. And if you just search for help for parents, you'll get a bunch of different posts. And if you keep looking through them, you'll see lists of things that you can ask people to do. And I think I have some of those in my book too. There's a section where it just says, ask them to mow the lawn. Um, yes. Assign somebody. Uh, one gal said that a friend of hers came and said, okay, every Tuesday, her daughter had cancer and they were having to take her for treatments. Every Tuesday, I'm going to come in and I'm going to strip your beds and do all your sheets and remake your beds every week. It was a good enough friend that she could do that. You know, you probably wouldn't say that to someone you were only an acquaintance with, but you <laughs> might say it to your best friend or let your best friend do it. There are so many things that you can have people do. Um, you just kind of need to be proactive and, and have those items on hand. So start thinking about what you would need. And then the other piece is you, you need to relinquish a little bit of the control. This is something I learned with my mother. She did a marvelous job with us and with my dad's illness, but she made sure everybody thought that we were doing just fine all the time and that we didn't need any help. And so she would not ask for help except from my one aunt and uncle who lived in town because they were family. But you certainly couldn't ask friends or people from church or anybody like that because you, you, know, you wouldn't want to show that you needed help. And we needed help. And my mom needed help. She was under a tremendous amount of strain. And sometimes that nearly broke her. And she probably did and said some things that she wishes she never had done and said. And if she had asked for help, that wouldn't have happened. So you need to ask for help and you need to accept help, whether it's just somebody coming in with a meal or mowing your lawn, or if it's going and saying, I, I'm afraid if this goes on, I could hurt my child. I need some counseling or I need somebody. Uh, it, uh, one of the best things I think you can do as parents is get somebody in there 
if you qualify for in-home care for your child, get some caregivers in there who can care for your child so you can get a break. If not, find some friends who you can train to deal with your child, be familiar enough with your child and so your child's comfortable with them so that you can get away for a little while and have them with this trusted person or a couple people. Um, I've heard it said that a lot of special needs parents actually in the long run because they don't choose to get help or um, they choose to to be in control and and at times it's hard to know how to ask when the disability is going to be a difficult one to care for but they're really caring for the family and so letting the guard down and asking for help and taking care of self I think in the long run would prevent a lot of the post-traumatic stress syndromes that occur in parents who have faced that disability every day and are traumatized from it. Well, I love your prayer guide from fragile to fearless mm -hmm. because what you're talking about, there's a lot of fears in that. I can only imagine that some folks are hearing such great direction from you, but also fearful that what if I've overlooked this in my child? How can people connect with you and um, find out more? Sure. Uh, again, I mentioned my website. That's a great place to connect with me. That's differentdream.com. And anybody can email me through that. Um, there's a connect. But I, and I post something almost every day. So some kind of a resource for parents or I have guest bloggers or whatever. I'm also on Twitter. And with my name, that's really easy because I can just use my name, Jolene Philo, J-O-L-E-N-E-P-H-I-L-O. And I'm also on Facebook, so you can contact me there through my name. Or again, I have a different dream page, and I put a lot of resources up there. So that's a great place to connect with me. Right now, and this is interesting, and I hope to do more in the future, I'm doing an online book study of my first book, A Different Dream for My Child, this one. Um, it's so good too. That. Yep. We're doing that one with the group called Mommies of Miracles that's on Facebook. And I they, even know uh, that. They are, they, they're young and so they were able to do all the tech part that I couldn't figure out. So we're in the middle of a book study right now and that's been great because moms are able to just kind of get on and tell what their problem is and some other mom might have a solution or can say, you know, I was just like that last year and here's what helped me, or here's the verse, or here's what somebody did. So any of those ways, please contact me. Um, I also love to go out and speak to groups or um, ministry groups, whatever. I have a list of the things that you speak on, and I'm sure oh. there are many more, but um, walking through the wilderness is one of your topics, hiding God's word in your heart, a princess in recovery, and I love that one, um, stay in the day is another topic, and there are more. And we have show notes that are here with the interview. So all of her information, all of Jolene's information is going to be placed on those notes, and you can access them. And also, my hope in our interview and in our time together, Jolene, is to bring us to a remembrance of God's Word and His truth, which is really the sustainable provides the sustainability 
of our lives. And one of the prayers that you wrote is from Psalm 1914, which says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Dear Redeemer, all I can think about is the loss of my child or whatever the need may be. All I can pray about is my grief, and that is what I have to offer you today. Accept it and be pleased with it, my rock and my redeemer. That's bringing the Lord right into the middle of where you have been, where I have been. So I, I just encourage you to please, please reach out um, and find help like Jolene had encouraged us to. As we come to the end of our time, Jolene, I want to just say thank you. What a blessing. What a blessing you are to so many people through this. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Every day I think of all those parents who have no hope. And my prayer is that I can reach one more. So thank you for helping me do that. Well, I hope you have a great day. You too. Thank you again so much. I just want to call you now almost every day because I want to be your good friend. <laughs> go right ahead. We can talk whenever we want. There you go. Have a great afternoon. You too. You can find the show notes and referenced resources in the podcast description or on our website, reframingministries.com. If you were impacted by today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you rated and reviewed the podcast, shared it on your social media, or share it with some friends who you think would be touched. You can email me personally at reframingministries at insight.org. If you'd like to be updated on reframing's activities and content, please feel free to subscribe on our website. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.